Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes podcast. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. The idea of the library is to help us all learn from these mistakes and stop making them so often. There are also now libraries of mistakes in Lausanne, in Switzerland and in Pune, in India. Visit librarymistakes.com to find out more. The library is owned by Didasco, a financial educational charity based in Scotland, which also runs an online course called Advanced Valuation in Financial Markets, and its in-person variety, which we hold in London twice a year, called A Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more about the courses, see the link to Didasco in the podcast show notes. Hello, welcome everybody. I'm delighted today to welcome uh, Mike Hoyle, who is author of Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. Uh, Mike, it's 30 years, I think, since we first discussed global liquidity. Things have changed a bit over that time, particularly the quantity, because when this book was published in 2019, you estimated it to be 130 trillion pool of footloose cash. Wow. Do you want to explain what it is? Because it's not the traditional description of money that I think we're all brought up with in textbooks. Your description of liquidity is a bit broader than what we think of as money. So what is this footloose cash? How is it generated? And then we can talk about its impact as it moves around the world. Okay, Russell. Well, let me just first um, uh, update us on the on the size. Since I wrote the book, uh, the pool of global liquidity was about 130 trillion, as you say. It's now about 170 trillion. So uh, courtesy of COVID and central bank intervention, uh, there's been another jump uh, in the total. What we think of as liquidity is basically uh, the flow of uh, cash and credit through global financial markets. Uh, it's a measure we think of as balance sheet or the capacity of balance sheets and or the capacity of balance sheets in the financial sector, as I say. And the reason that's important is that one of the things or one of the themes of the book is that the financial system has turned from being a new financing system into a refinancing system. In other words, debt is paramount and the rollover of debt is, is critical and you need balance sheet to roll the debt. And so it's a refinancing system that we're looking at. And in that world, it almost becomes sort of topsy-turvy. A lot of the things that we would expect to happen kind of run in reverse. Uh, and that's part of the, the theme in the book. Yeah, so money is easily described, I think, as what we have in the bank. Let's start with that very narrow measure of money. But then there's something called moneyness, which you refer to in these other assets. As we go from money to moneyness, what sort of things are in moneyness that we need to be looking out for when we try to work out how much liquidity is in the system? Okay, well, let's sort of get back to the sort of uh, basics of money. The way that many people describe or conventionally economists describe money is these sort of aggregates that you'll be familiar with, such as M1 or M2 or maybe even M3. The problem with those definitions are that what they refer to is largely bank deposits. Uh, and in fact, retail bank deposits or bank uh, deposits in high street banks. Now, if you believe that money only, only consists of deposits in high street banks, I'll come quietly. But in the modern world, there's much more of a wholesale flavor to money and what we call liquidity. Now, if we take a deposit, first of all, although people think they're spending a deposit in a credit money system, they're not. 
what they're doing is they're depending on the on the bank credit. So what you're doing is you're transferring your balance to another party, but what you need is the credit of the bank. So if you had, let's say, a bank deposit in some obscure bank, uh, the Bank of Timbuktu, but without being you know detrimental to Timbuktu, if you had a deposit there, uh, would you be able to spend it? And the question would come back to, what is the quality of the credit? Having money in Barclays or Lloyds or JP Morgan or Bank of Scotland, clearly that works because credit quality is there. So what this really tells us is we need to look at the credit side of balance sheets. Once you start to look at the credit side of balance sheets, then there's a whole range of new instruments that, that arise. Uh, a bank or a financial entity can lend through a traditional bank loan. Uh, they can lend through a security lending. Uh, repo financing has become a hugely more important avenue in terms of, uh, of lending in the modern world. And so what we're doing fundamentally is, number one, we're looking at the asset side of financial institutions' balance sheets. We're embracing uh, what are called banks as what are shadow banks. Shadow banks do a lot of lending uh, or non-traditional lending, such as securitization. And we're taking a global view. So that's really the difference in terms of what we're doing in global liquidity and looking at conventional M2 money supply. Now, people listening to this will be very familiar with borrowing against a uh, borrowing secured. Usually that's their mortgage. They borrow against their home. Uh, you point out in the book that there's quite a lot of borrowing going on against existing assets. And that's the collateral that underpins a lot of this other liquidity out there, this moneyness out there. Now, at the core of that are government bonds. Uh, but it's interesting, you kind of define a, a form of good collateral or bad collateral, if you like. Do you want to talk about the role that these important, these high quality assets, because that is what they're known as, what role they form in the creation of this moneyness? Uh, and perhaps the impact of the price of those assets declines, because we have watched very considerable declines in the price of government bonds uh, recently. So the role of collateral, the way it, you would use it to, to borrow for, for a home in the markets and how changes in the price of that collateral as changes in the price of a home impact the availability of credit and moneyness. Yeah, OK. This is perhaps in many ways a, a key question. Many people will be familiar with borrowing on mortgage, OK, where what you've got is you've got a loan which is collateralized against the value of your real estate, your, your property. OK. Most other lending up until the global financial crisis in 2008 uh, was non-collateralized. So there was a lot of trust, let's say, put in uh, put behind a loan. Since the global financial crisis, uh, the vast majority of lending now is collateralized or secured lending. So there's some asset behind the loan. Now, repo lending is one particular avenue there that is a specialized form of lending that is particularly important uh, in wholesale markets. And you cited the use of government bonds. So for example, if I have a government bond, I can use that as security and I can borrow against that bond. Now, it may well be the case that the borrowing opportunity is sufficiently good that I can actually use this as an arbitrage. So in other words, I can buy a bond, uh, I can uh, effectively borrow against it, and I've now got a, uh, essentially an investment product that I've created. And that's a way that you can see the whole financial system spiraling and potentially spiraling out of control. So collateralized lending uh, is dependent in many ways on the value of the asset. 
And if the asset goes up in value, I can borrow a lot more against it. And if the asset goes down in value, then I've got to start finding new margin. And that is uh, or can be a problem, particularly in a financial crisis. Now, that means that you can then differentiate forms of collateral between, as I say, good collateral, which tends to be government securities. Um, I would raise the question of what happened then to the British gilt market in September, when there clearly was a problem uh, in a sovereign debt market, um, and bad collateral, which may be, fact, uh, may be uh, securities or instruments that will fluctuate significantly in value. And therefore, the lender will then give you, will provide a large haircut uh, to those asset values if they want to lend to you. So the price of the key bit of collateral government bonds has really been going up for 40 years, not in a straight line, but with a cyclical pattern. It's been going up for 40 years. Now it's been coming down since 2020. Have you seen any major implications of that? Uh, well, not so far, I suppose you could call this a small move, but it's maybe one of the bigger moves we've seen in the price of that key collateral in that 40-year period. What impact do you think that is having on global liquidity? Well, I think the, I mean, the short answer is that if, um, if bond yields go down and therefore the price of bonds go up, that's providing more collateral. If bond yields go up and consequently bond prices go down, that's reducing collateral. But there's another factor which comes into the equation which affects the value of collateral or the pool of collateral. And that is actually the supply of government bonds that are available to the private sector. Now, one of the things that has affected that or distorted that has been austerity policies uh, enacted by governments in the last 10 years or so, particularly following the global financial crisis. And in the UK, we've got George Osborne to thank for that, uh, I think, uh, you know, errant policy, uh, which has actually significantly reduced the amount of collateral available. But this is not just a UK phenomenon, it's a global phenomenon. Many, many treasurers around the world have actually curtailed issuance of debt. On top of that, we've also got the phenomena of QE, quantitative easing by central banks. Now, although that says, on the one hand, you're actually providing more liquidity, on the other hand, one of the ways that central banks actually provide liquidity is by them themselves buying government bonds. In other words, taking bonds away from the private sector. So actually what we're seeing uh, in global financial markets at the moment is a general shortage of good quality collateral. Let me give you one pointed example. Uh, in the Eurozone, the Bund is probably, in most people's estimation, what you might call pristine collateral. But the amount of 10-year uh, Bunds that are available to the private sector is now about 10% of their total issuance for the simple reason that the Bundesbank has vacuumed up most of the others as part of its QE exercise. So you can see that central banks are distorting. But on top of that, you've also got other factors, such as the rise of uh, foreign exchange managers, uh, particularly in Asia, who have uh, accumulated vast pools of foreign exchange. And one of the things they will invest in is Western government bonds, US treasuries, for example. Add to that as well, you've got the Basel III um, regulations on global banks and solvency too, which are pushing many of these financial institutions to hold more safe assets. So what we've actually got in the world, uh, maybe paradoxically, uh, after this big surge in liquidity, is a shortage of collateral. And that is a problem. 
And it's a problem when you start to need to roll over debt, general debt, because that collateral can actually support financial sector balance sheets and liquidity. Now, one particular evidence of that problem is something which is very wonkish, which is called term premia. Term premia are probably the best way to value a bond, a government bond. And a term premia is, if you like, the risk premium that is in a bond that compensates the holder for interest rate risk over the term of the bond. Now, as I say, this is a very wonkish concept, but think of it that if you're holding a bond over 10 years, you're going to want more of a cushion for unexpected interest rate movements because the value of the bond can fluctuate through that period. So term premium are key. What you've got at the moment in global bond markets, particularly in the US Treasury market, are all-time lows, negative readings, but all-time lows in term premium. And that's probably suggesting that you have uh, a general shortage of collateral in the system. That is the big mispricing in the world. And if that term premium were eliminated overnight, global bond yields could be 100 to 200 basis points. In other words, 1 to 2 percentage points higher in yield than they are now. Big problem. About your book, there are many important things about it, but it doesn't actually agree necessarily with the textbooks on this subject, which might tell us that the bond pricing is done by uh, fundamental long term investors who are pricing the yield to compensate them for future inflation. What you've just described is a whole bunch of other people who own government bonds, potentially for entirely different reasons, who are, let us just say, potentially less interested in the yield and more interested in the, the use they can put this security to. Uh, does that fundamentally change the way you look at bond markets? Does it fundamentally change the way we should all look at bond markets? And does it potentially account for why yields seem so ridiculously low in an era of inflation? I mean, are bonds really telling as much about inflation anymore? Or are these almost compelled buyers that you've just run through for us there? Are they shipping this yield in, in a completely different fashion, which is increasingly disconnected from inflation expectations? Short answer, yes, Russell. I mean, I think the, the fact is that there are many other players here who are distorting uh, the yield structure. These are people that are forced to buy bonds for either regularity or uh, for pension reasons. I mean, I take you back to September of 2022 and the guilt crisis in the UK uh, concerning so-called LDI, liability-driven investment schemes. Uh, and that was uh, essentially forced on pension funds because they had to uh, capture the duration, which is, a, again, a wonkish bond concept, that was embedded in the bond. In other words, to try and match pension liabilities, they had to buy, and they did this in leveraged form, lots of government bonds. And the very fact that government bonds were in short supply and had low yields actually encouraged a lot of that leverage. Um, so what you can get here are sort of spirals in the financial markets because of leverage, that are just, as I sort of said right at the beginning, we're sort of in a topsy-turvy world now. Uh, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the things are sort of running in reverse. Um, the world has been turned upside down by many of this sort of much of this financial innovation. So I think we've got an idea of what liquidity is, or a better idea of what it is, and what role it plays, and how it's distorting bond yields. But if, back to the real world and some of the impacts it's had, and I think that's when you and I first starting discussing this in the early 1990s, because it was quite clear, even in those early days, just what an impact these flows could have on 
what we call emerging markets. So I wanted to read a bit from your book and then we can discuss the, the impact of this and what the future might mean. Uh, this is a, a bit entitled Cross-Border Capital Flaws. Uh, with hindsight, the pattern of all these crises look remarkably similar. Every national crisis is preceded by an economic boom, although not every economic boom has been followed by a financial crisis. Their cause is not so much floating exchange rate regimes per se, but the destructive effect of rapidly shifting cross-border capital flows. Such risks were well known to the architects of Bretton Woods. They deliberately restricted private capital movements, blaming the depths of the 1930s depression and the, inter- and the turmoil of the interwar years on the violent swings of capital between nations. Well, we're in the business of violent swings of capital. Uh, would you want to add anything to that? I mean, if we ever get round to building a new monetary system, do you think the free movement of capital will be as large? Is this $130 trillion pool of capital too big for democracies? I think that, I mean, this is the sort of $64,000 question. I mean, uh, the answer is probably yes. And that was, as you know, a conclusion that came out of the 1930s uh, was that capital movements were just too significant uh, and too big. And they they ravaged uh, many economies. Um, And what you've had uh, coming out of that is uh, new monetary arrangements that came out of the Bretton Woods system. Now, Really, in the book, I mean, what what I talk about, I suppose, you might say are three main themes. One of the themes is what I think of as Bretton Woods 1. And although there's been a lot of discussion about we're in a Bretton Woods 2 or we're in a Bretton Woods 3, fundamentally, we're not. We're still in Bretton Woods 1. And what you need to think about, I think, is, you know, what was that Bretton Woods 1 system about? It was basically about creating... Uh, a dominant framework for U.S. capital. And we, we're in a now much more competitive world where China is challenging that. But effectively, what you had was not just trade being denominated in dollars. It's not about the denomination that's important. It's really about the fact that the U.S. could act as banker to the world. So if the world needed credit, U.S. banks uh, and the U.S. could basically provide that credit. And if the world needed savings instruments... Uh, in other words, U.S. treasuries or U.S. dollars, the U.S. would provide that. It's got very deep financial markets. And one of the uh, errors that we've often seen, uh, and I'm sure you've written about before, is that think of the U.S. trade deficit. That's not, that's not necessarily the problem. It's nothing about U.S. trade competitiveness or lack of it that is the issue. The reason the U.S. Got, has got a big trade deficit is because its financial competitiveness is this so great. So the financial surplus, if you like, is the counterpart of the trade deficit. So because American finance is dominant, America is forced to run a trade deficit. Now, what that basically leads to is a framework where you've got essentially the U.S. as the banker to the world, the dollar being used, the IMF on the World Bank being used to police uh, different countries' balance of payments issues, and ultimately, the whole system backstopped by the U.S. military. That's Bretton Woods 1. Not much there about fixed exchange rates. That was, you know, an adjunct of the system, but it wasn't critical to it. So we lost fixed exchange rates in the early 1970s, and we got floating exchange rates. But from that point, the whole Bretton Woods system effectively uh, exploded uh, in a positive way for America because effectively t- flows of dollars... Uh, started to escalate significantly. 
US banks became dominant and this is the situation we're effectively in now. Now, the other, so the other two points of the book were number one is that those capital flow or capital imbalances were adjusted not through economies, but really through financial markets. And as a result of financial innovation or whatever, you saw the rise of the repo. You saw this complex interaction between debt, liquidity and collateral, as I, as I spoke about. But effectively, what this means is that uh, balance sheet capacity is important in a world where refinancing of debt is the critical element. Now, although I don't put estimates in the book, subsequently, we've looked in detail at the relative uh, split in financial markets. And something like for every $1 that's raised in new financing today, $7 are used in terms or, or flow in terms of refinancing. So in other words, the rollover of debt, because the debt mountain is so huge, it needs to be refinanced and you need balance sheet capacity to do that. And that's part of this whole liquidity equation. So it's not the cost of capital, in other words, the interest rate that is critical. It's the capacity of capital in the system. Think of it as a homeowner or a mortgage. Okay, If you come to the end of your uh, mortgage term, uh, and you can't pay back the loan, you want to roll it on or roll it forward. You need something to roll the debt. Don't care about the interest rate because otherwise you're going to be homeless. Uh, I'm not saying interest is unimportant, but it's not really the major consideration. It's getting the roll on the debt that's critical. And that is what balance sheet's about. And then the third area, which we can discuss later, is the Chinese challenge to the US system, which is out there and coming but it's probably coming at a slow but determined pace. Well, well, you and I have been on the receiving end of some of this volatility in capital flows, most notably in the Asian financial crisis when what was a flood became a, became a drought. Looking back now, something has really fundamentally changed in the system since then, which is the activity of the Federal Reserve Bank and swap lines. And swap lines are the ability of that central bank, the U.S., to provide dollars to other central banks who will provide them to local financial institutions that need dollars. Very recently, uh, in the last four or five months, a large swap line in dollars was sent to the Swiss National Bank from the US Federal Reserve. What do you think of swap lines? Uh, well, it's interesting, we had Helen Thompson on here, who's an academic at the University of Cambridge. I didn't even know academics knew what swap lines were, but Helen uh, flags them up in her book. Uh, I think they're incredibly important in this new system. What does it mean? Would there have been an Asian financial crisis if swap lines had been available across Asia? What role does this play? Is it a mitigating force? Is it an exacerbating force? Does it, is it a partial solution to the volatility of capital flows? How important are swap lines? Well, I think the, the best way to consider them is that they are rather like lender of the last resort facilities in the international economy. Um, they're a clever device because... Um, if the US government, in other words, through the Federal Reserve, is lending dollars to needy borrowers who have taken out uh, dollar loans, um, the responsibility for paying that loan back is on the domestic central bank or the national central bank. So in other words, there's no credit risk from the Federal Reserve point of view, and they will lend dollars to Switzerland, and the Swiss National Bank will be responsible. Now, the point about that system is that uh, it ties in very well with the latest, if you like, iteration of, um, of US policy, which is called friendshoring, uh, which Janet Yellen has spoken a lot about. 
and it's really about having a, um, uh, if you like, a, a, a collegiate uh, environment whereby you're either a friend of America or you're a foe of America. It's very well defined. And I'll go back to my statement about Bretton Woods 1, and that was almost precisely what Bretton Woods 1 was, because outside of Bretton Woods 1, on the Bretton Woods system, you had essentially the USSR and China who were not party to that system. So there was a very clearly defined boundary around those capital flows and that dollar system. And what we're doing is we're effectively moving back to that situation once more. Now, the advantage if you're a receiver of dollars and you're a friend of the US is that those swap lines can be very important. If you're China who doesn't get access to those swap lines, you may have a problem. And they've become a very political weapon. And it's sort of Nero-like where, you know, the US, whoever's in the White House, puts a thumb up or turns a thumb down um, to show their economic power. Now, the other thing to say, just to throw into this, is that China also has lots of swap lines uh, around the region, the Asian region. It's building those swap lines, but they're really being used, in my view, in a very different way. So whereas the US is using them in a more overtly political way to actually try and avoid or stop people defaulting on dollar borrowings, in China's case, what they're doing is the swap lines are much more about trade and the denomination of trade in yuan. Now, one of the things that we're going to see, I would say absolutely definitely in the next few years, is an increasing denomination or redenomination of trade, global trade in Chinese yuan or renminbi, okay? And the reason those swap lines are there is the trading partners of China can then get access to those swap lines. So what China is building is a financial system in exactly the same way that America built their financial system in the 1920s. America, the, the dollar was nowhere, as you know from history books, in 1914, but it suddenly jumped in importance when sterling uh, when British banks were prevented from lending internationally during uh, World War I, America stepped in and it created uh, a trade credit network through US banks. And it was from that, that uh, those uh, early, you know, early uh, acorns, if you like, that we've got the sort of the oak trees of the dollar system that's been grown, trade credit. China's doing much the same thing. So we have got to China and, you know, we probably should have started with China and finished with China. It's so important. We'll just go on with this for a minute and then come back to what role China has played in, in the system. Uh, we all know why China wants to transact in renminbi, because if you're transacting in dollars, the long arm of America can affect all of your transactions and you'd much prefer to transact in RMB. There is a second question now for those who choose to transact in RMB, whether that be Saudi Arabia or some other commodity providers. Do they then choose to hold those renminbi? Now, that's a big question. And we do, we do get data on the percentage of the foreign exchange reserves, the reserves of the world central bankers, what percentage is held in renminbi. It is very small. They have had the option to hold it now, I think, since 2014. They've chosen not to hold it. So we, we go forward the next couple of years. We see exactly these arrangements taking place for people to transact directly with China in renminbi. What do you think? Do they hold them? Do we suddenly see a rise in the composition of world foreign exchange reserves, which are held in the form of RMB, or do they transact in them and then sell them? I think the, the, my answer would be is that 
what we're seeing is a very, very gradual movement towards more uh, um, an internationalization of the yuan, in other words, more people holding uh, Chinese assets. But I think it's a very slow movement. It's not as rapid as many people uh, fear or some expect. If you come back to uh, an international financial system, what you've got is probably three legs. One is the, the currency of denomination. In other words, what are you transacting in? Now, that tends to be, in many ways, the least important of the three. Uh, and it's a little bit like saying, if you, you, know, uh, if you measured Oxford Street in kilometres rather than miles, would it be any longer or would it be shorter? It, it wouldn't matter. You've, you've, you're just changing the, the, the unit of account. The second thing which is more important is what is your settlement system? In other words, how do you uh, settle a trade? Now, what you've got in the dollar system is very well established means of settling. So uh, you effectively have correspondent banks or you have the swift settlement system, which can actually, which can uh, actively, uh, although it's, it's still quite uh, painstaking, it will actually enable uh, somebody to, to, to uh, settle a trade from dollars uh, to yen or Chinese renminbi or whatever. There's an established system. The Chinese are setting up a rival system and have set up a rival system, SWIFT, but it's not really being used that much. But it could be, it could evolve. And then you've got the third point, which I sort of alluded to earlier on, is does that country, US or China, is it able to, to act as banker to the world? And that's really the key point. So it would be very nice from a Chinese perspective, or so they may think, to suddenly re-denominate uh, oil trade in Chinese yuan and then get the Saudis or whoever to hold Chinese assets. But they can't really do that because Chinese financial markets are not large enough or deep enough or maybe attractive enough for these countries to hold their assets. So China basically is not able, on the one hand, to absorb savings flows coming in. And secondly, it's not able to provide and probably unwilling to provide, question mark, uh, credit going out if different countries wanted uh, to borrow Chinese yuan in that way. So it cannot act as banker. So what you've got are these three legs, the least important being the currency of denomination, uh, but the most important really being the settlement system and the paramount one being banker to the world. China's nowhere near the third. It could be, you know, some way down the road on the uh, on the second, but it's still got a long way to travel. So your book is appropriately called Capital Wars, uh, the rise of global liquidity. But capital wars can mean something else, which is the US is very uh, aware of what China is trying to do. In fact, Mike Pompeo has just put out a new book where he specifically talks about the attempt by the Chinese to undermine the reserve currency status of the dollar as a national priority. He may not be in office, but uh, that's his opinion. Uh, we think of the, the wars between China and America in terms of trade, whether it be chips or the American list of companies which they see as having military components that people are not allowed to invest in anymore. Where do you see this going? Are we getting to a period where there are going to be some restrictions on anybody who's an ally of America investing in Chinese assets? So your description suggests that if you could maintain or uh, constrain China from becoming the banker to the world, then you can well, the word that America likes to use is contain China. So is this going to be a real capital war now? Are capital markets and capital flows going to be on the front line of this? It's going to be more about trade or is it going to be more about capital going forward? 
I think it's both, but I think the, the paramount issue, in my view, is that it's about capital. And, you know, that, that's where the power in the world economy really comes, is financial power in many ways. And that's what America has enjoyed through the, the, the dominance of the US dollar. China recognises that. And there's a quote, um, quite a delicious quote I found in the, uh, that's quoted in the book from a speech by Major General uh, Quang Liang, who is uh, often a spokesman for the Chinese uh, uh, Communist Party, but he's a member of the People's Liberation Army. And one of the things he says, uh, which I quote, is we should promote the renminbi to be the primary currency of Asia, just as the US dollar first became the currency of North America and then the currency of the world. He goes on to say every globalization was initiated by a rising empire as a rising superpower the one belt one road strategy is the beginning of china's own globalization it is a countermeasure to the us strategy of shifting focus to the east that was uh, delivered in april 2015 and it pretty much encapsulates what china is trying to do this was if you like the first shot in the capital war that we're looking at and it really embeds uh, you know chinese policy or it explains chinese policy in that context China wants to move, wants to develop its financial system. It's got a very strong industrial economy, but it's got a very weak or nascent financial sector. And that's really the paradox. China spends most of its time re-exporting dollars when it should be exporting yuan. And that's what it effectively needs to do. To get there, it must deepen its financial markets. And this is one of the things that I think America is alert to and wants to try and prevent. The, uh, this is not the first time this has come onto the agenda, albeit in a smaller way. During the Asian financial crisis, uh, a man called Sakaki Barra tried to create a alternative to the IMF, be like, which would be money put together by Japan and China. He approached the Chinese, and this would have, in some ways, internationalized either the renminbi or the or the or the or the yen, and given a power base for an Asian body in Asia. It didn't happen because America snuffed it out very quickly. Uh, we now have Japan, I think, very clearly in the U.S. camp in this uh, growing Cold War, not in the Chinese camp. What do you think the role of Japan is in trying to, you know, the Chinese may be trying to build this as an Asian power base, but so many of the real owners of reserves in Asia, whether it be Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, their vested interest is not, is also not potentially in helping China build this. So is it really likely? I mean, we could our others, India, Indonesia actually has significant reserves. So in terms of reserve managers of the Asian region, how likely is it that they would on this occasion begin to support some sort of regional body, regional reserve currency based around the renminbi? I think in my view, Russell, I think that what you're seeing is, um, is a grouping that really straddles um, Asia. Uh, it embraces, if you like, uh, countries that are maybe less in tune now with the United States, maybe increasingly in tune with uh, some of the noises that are coming out, policy noises that are coming out of China. And one would include in that grouping, obviously, Russia. Uh, One would include probably North Korea, Iran, uh, potentially Brazil, South Africa, Saudi. Uh, Other OPEC countries could be in that grouping too. Japan, Korea, I would not I don't think they will, they will take the bait and I think America is sufficiently uh, in control there or has sufficient influence to maybe prevent that um, but that's the sort of grouping I, I would tend to see now 
there's still a problem because even if you start to look at that grouping, generally those countries have large surpluses, trade surpluses. And we come back to this problem about where are they going to invest their surpluses. And their financial markets or their economies are not really able to take uh, these vast flows of savings. So you still have to use the dollar in many cases. So I think it's not quite you know, as straightforward as saying magically we're going to create a rival to the dollar because you know, that's your first step. But there are several other steps before you actually create an international currency. For, for those listening, you, if you want to follow exactly where the renminbi is in terms of reserve balances, you can do that IMF reduce uh, release quarterly data so you can see it. It's not, they're not making much progress. And I think most of it is probably held by, the, by, uh, by Russia at the minute. So it's maybe a developing story, but as I think we probably both agree, it's got a long way to go. Uh, Mike, I was going to try and sum up your book, which is really very difficult. So as usual, I'll just read from Jim Grant because Jim says things much better than I do. And he says, he says this of Capital Wars. Capital Wars is just what the world needs right now. Lucid, important, and more than occasionally astonishing. It's the investor's essential companion in this age of nonstop monetary meddling. I think that's pretty accurate. May even underestimate it. I think it's difficult to understand how financial markets work without reading Capital Wars. So, uh, Thank you for writing it. I certainly learned a lot reading it. Uh, I think it deserves a bigger audience. Hopefully we can help you get a bigger audience for it. And uh, yeah, let's hope in 30 years from now we're still discussing global capital flows. <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll have stopped them by then or they'll have stopped us by then. Great. Thanks, Ross. It's been a great uh, honor to be on your, on your program. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply go to libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader, and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform.